This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. There are three general areas and levels of involvement in satanic occult worship. The first would be dabblers. They're people who just use it for fun and games, may be involved in some video games and that kind of level, possibly a little graffiti, but reasonably innocent. The second level would be those that are involved for spiritual reasons, and they recognize that there's power in the worship of Satan. These people generally worship together and try to find the mystery of it all. And then the third level would be criminal involvement, and that's the area that interests us. These people actually believe that they gain power through criminal activity, through killing people, through various rituals that are against the law in our states and in our country. The word occult comes from the Latin word occultus, which means hidden. The common English usage generally refers to having knowledge of the paranormal or knowledge of something that is only meant for certain people. Most practicing occultists define the word as relating to a deeper spiritual reality, one that extends beyond modern science or accepted rational thought. But as far as the layman is concerned, the word occult has a more sinister connotation. It conjures up images of torchlit ceremonies, unwilling sacrificial participants, and hooded practitioners of bloody rituals. The draw of the hidden and the macabre is undeniable, if only because we know these types of things only happen on TV or in the movies. But that's not always true. Ritualistic murder is a reality though a relatively uncommon one. Ritual killing can fall under the same heading as serial killing, though the reverse isn't necessarily true. A ritual murder is a ritualistic act involving specific mutilation of the victim and or a precise positioning of the corpse. It involves acts that are committed separate from the actual murder like biting, excessive physical desecration, and or sexual assault. Things like this do happen. But there is one caveat. Go ahead and Google the phrase Ritual Murder 2020. A lot of lurid headlines pop up, don't they? At the time of this recording, I saw several notable ones. Gang members charged with killing women in satanic ritual, bald men killed for witchcraft, and murdered woman may be victim of ritual killing. Judging by this search, occultists are out of control swarming among us unchecked and committing their dark deeds with impunity. But a closer inspection of these headlines reveals something interesting, something that holds true concerning many of these cases. The evidence that these particular crimes were committed for truly ritualistic or occult purposes is usually slim to none. Take the first headline I clicked, Gang Members Charged with Killing Woman in Satanic Ritual. 
The two gang members in question did unfortunately murder a girl allegedly because she disagreed with the gang's satanic practices. There was however no corroboration of what those practices entailed, nor evidence to support the motive for the homicide. Further searching turned up a bit more information, but nothing that proved this woman was murdered for truly satanic purposes. Of course, I found nothing to deny this claim either. And that's the problem. Far too often in cases of alleged ritual homicide, the occult angle is played up significantly by the media to get people's attention. These days, most people don't bat an eye when they hear about a gang-related murder. But a gang-related murder involving Satan? That's going to get people watching, reading, and talking, even if the evidence of Satanism is barely there to begin with. It was 1980 when Michelle Remembers was published. The book was written by psychologist Lawrence Pazder and one of his patients, Michelle Smith. The story was a harrowing account of the satanic ritual abuse Michelle claimed she endured throughout her early childhood. Michelle had been seeing Pazder to treat her depression, but at some point, Pazder became convinced Michelle was holding on to repressed memories. Using hypnosis, Pazder retrieved these memories, the content of which was shocking. Michelle claimed to have been the victim of a satanic cult, one that held her prisoner for the purposes of torture and sexual abuse. Michelle alleged that her own mother participated in this abuse. She claimed to have been locked in cages, forced to witness the murder of adults and infants, as well as the summoning of Satan himself. According to Michelle, it was Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the Archangel Michael who finally intervened, removing her physical scars and repressing her memories. The problem was, there wasn't a shred of evidence to prove Michelle Smith's claims. Family, friends, and neighbors attributed the outlandish story to an overactive imagination. A mountain of books and articles have been written in the intervening years that debunk most, if not all, of Michelle's allegations. But Michelle remembers sold, and the fear it mongered had real consequences for some unlucky people. In 1983, Judy Johnson came to believe that her son had been sexually abused at the McMartin Preschool, located in Manhattan Beach, California. Johnson based this belief on the fact that her son had several painful bowel movements. At first, her son denied any such abuse, but after considerable prompting, he began making wild claims about the teachers at McMartin, specifically that members of the staff could fly and that they engaged in bestiality though the boy didn't use that exact term. Johnson immediately contacted local authorities. The police's response to the allegations was questionable. They sent a form letter to all McMartin parents indicating that their children may have been molested at the hands of the school faculty. These letters, combined with the children's imaginations, coercive questioning, and a Michelle remembers fueled moral panic, led investigators to believe that at least 360 children had been abused at the McMartin School by 1984. This despite the children claiming they saw witches at school, rode in a hot air balloon, and were flushed down toilets into secret rooms to endure abuse. Eventually, 
Experts deemed the children's interviews were improperly handled and their allegations coerced. No evidence was ever located to support the idea that any abuse occurred at the McMartin Preschool, though at least one of the accused, Ray Bucky, son of school founder Virginia McMartin, spent five years in jail before being acquitted. Judy Johnson, who had set the whole debacle in motion, was later diagnosed and hospitalized with paranoid schizophrenia. She died in 1986 of chronic alcoholism. Though the so-called satanic panic of the 1980s was dying down by the early 1990s, this didn't prevent three West Memphis, Arkansas teenagers from being imprisoned for a series of murders they did not commit. Known as the West Memphis Three, Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., and Jason Baldwin were accused of murdering three eight-year-old boys. Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers were reported missing on May 5, 1993. They were discovered the following night in a drainage canal, each one of them naked and hogtied, Byers having sustained lacerations to his body and genitals. Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin were known to local police for a handful of minor offenses like shoplifting, vandalism, and fistfighting. The three youths, Eccles especially, were metalheads, and this, along with their reputation as social misfits, put them in the crosshairs of a lazy, bungled, and ultimately corrupt police investigation. After failing to maintain the integrity of the crime scene and botching the coroner's report on the three eight-year-olds, the West Memphis Three found themselves on the receiving end of a modern-day witch hunt. They were accused of murdering the three boys for occult purposes. Eccles received the death penalty, while Miss Kelly and Baldwin both got life. It took until 2007 for new forensic evidence to come to light that exonerated the West Memphis Three. Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin were allowed to make Alford pleas, resulting in their 2011 release. The three are now regarded as innocent victims of a fear-mongering public who was rabid to punish anyone for such a horrible crime. The real murderer of Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers has never been apprehended. We're fascinated by the phenomenon of occult crime, so much so that we'll credit a particularly heinous act to the occult when further inspection often reveals it is not in any way related. And, as we have seen, such a miscalculation can cost people justice or their personal freedom. It doesn't appear that most law enforcement agencies have a handle on what constitutes occult belief, witchcraft, Satanism, or any other non-traditional observance. These buzzwords are slapped onto criminal cases so they can be marketed to the public by a rabid news media looking for a ratings boost. I'm Gordon Coulter. For many years I served as a law enforcement officer. Today it's my privilege to host this program on a little known area in law enforcement but important to every small community and every large city across our vast country. It's the area of satanic cults and how they impact our families, our children, and our communities. In satanic occultism, that which is good is bad, and that which is bad is good. And as you view this learning and educational tape, pay attention to notice the reverse of everything that is normal 
becoming abnormal. There are many crimes that are unsolved in our cities, and many of those crimes have ritualistic overtones, but they're hard to find, and it's difficult to find the, the depth of where these things go and who may have done them. Author H.P. Lovecraft famously wrote, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear, and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. To most people, the workings of Satanism or the occult are just that, the unknown. But fear gets people's attention. Fear motivates. Fear sells. And what's more frightening than evil, esoteric, bloodthirsty cults living secretly among us? The irony of a case like the West Memphis Three is not that these three teenagers, now adult men, were railroaded by the police for being minor offenders who listened to heavy metal. The irony is that the real murderer probably didn't possess their superficial look of misfit youth. That look that so many people equate with the dark side when really, it's just a kid wearing a black t-shirt. Whoever they were, this killer probably didn't look like a metalhead or a quote-unquote Satanist. This person committed the murders of three innocent children and was banal enough in appearance to slip away and remain unnoticed. Whatever ritual they were trying to appease might not be as stereotypical as the citizens of West Memphis thought. Throwing around words like satanic and witchcraft shift the focus of an investigation. Now instead of finding an actual culprit, everything and everyone that isn't Sunday school perfect is suspect. It's the devil you know versus the one you don't. Florida police are investigating the murder of an elderly woman and her two sons killed in their Pensacola home. Police believe it was part of a ritual. The murders happened July 31st, the night of the blue moon, an astronomical phenomenon that occurs once every three years. Police think it wasn't a coincidence the killings happened on that night. A spokeswoman for the sheriff's office told CNN that there are some indications in the investigation that witchcraft may have been involved. We believe the weapon was a claw hammer. Multiple blows were struck on each and every victim. Their throats were slit also. A spokesman for the sheriff's office told NBC further evidence that points to the suspected killer having a ritualistic motive include the injuries to the victims, the positions of the bodies, and also the person of interest right now is also a practitioner. Police checked the family's home after a co-worker of one of the sons reported his absence from work. It's a frightening thing to think about, especially when you have small children. There were no signs of a forced break-in. According to the Pensacola News Journal, none of the neighbors police interviewed had ever been inside the house. No suspect has been charged yet. It would be three months before a suspect was charged with the so-called Pensacola, Florida Blue Moon killings. On Tuesday, October 27, 2015, a man named Donald Hartung was arrested. He was the son of Von Seal Smith and half-brother to Richard and John, the three victims of these grisly homicides. At first, police were exploring motives of financial gain as Hartung stood to inherit money if his mother passed. Authorities also considered a connection to the Department of Homeland Security as Donald's half-brother Richard was a DHS employee. But the focus soon turned to a ritualistic occult motive. 
Donald Hartung murdered his family on Friday, July 31st, 2015, a day that just happened to coincide with a blue moon. A blue moon occurs when there are two full moons in one month. It's a semi-frequent lunar event that happens every two to three years, hence the expression, once in a blue moon. Despite its name, a blue moon is not actually blue. The phrase comes from the Old English bilu, which means to betray. A blue moon is traitorous in the sense that an extra moon added an extra month to the Catholic observance of Lent, a time of fasting and self-denial. Now, there are occult observances that align with the lunar calendar, but the significance of a blue moon is unrelated to the occult because the 12-month year, or the Gregorian calendar, is a Christian invention. And the Wiccan religion, for which the fault of Donald Hartung's violence was blamed by authorities, is centered around pre-Christian European observances. This glaring flaw in logic did not stop Escambia County Sheriff David Morgan from claiming the murders were connected to witchcraft. As evidence, the sheriff pointed to the ferocity of the murders, specifically that the victims' throats had been slit after they were bludgeoned with a claw hammer. The sheriff pointed to the positions of the bodies, though no further detail was given to substantiate the significance. It was then that Morgan claimed a person of interest in the crime may have had ties to the Wiccan religion. The only problem with that line of reasoning is that the Wiccan religion is not a violent one. In fact, one of the core tenets of their belief system is known as the Wiccan Reed, which reads, in modern English, do what you will so long as it harms none. Wiccans believe in nature, and though they practice many lunar observances, ritual murder is not one of them. The Wiccan community, both in Pensacola and around the world, were outraged with Sheriff Morgan for blaming this horrible crime on their beliefs. A writer for the occult magazine Dirge, who goes by the pen name Jinx Strange, wrote of the Hartung case, The blue moon has no formal significance in any pagan religion for one important reason. The blue moon is about as magical as leap year. Blue moons are neat and rare, but have about the same mystical gravitas as Friday the 13th. It's just a thing that happens. Donald Hartung murdered his family in a particularly brutal fashion, but the police and media's effort to paint him as a crazed occult lunatic was unsuccessful. It seems that he was evil enough all by himself. It was July 2011, when 16-year-old Jacob Hendershot was just beginning to reconnect with his biological mother, Nancy Robinson. He was spending the summer with her in Parker, Florida, located near Panama City in the Florida Panhandle. Jacob had been given up for adoption and raised by his grandparents in Indiana. He was described as a model Christian youth, and even at his young age had already completed a mission trip to South America, digging wells for the jungle population. But, as many college students can attest, a summer in Florida has a way of changing you. Though Jacob was never regarded as a problem teen, like many other kids his age, he began to dabble in drugs and alcohol. However, the real trouble began when Jacob brought home a new girlfriend to meet his mother, 18-year-old Stephanie Pisty. Since I was like 12, with every fiber of my being, basically everything, I know this is going to be crazy, but I believe that I'm a vampire. 
part of, a part of a vampire and part of a were- werewolf. Jacob began dating Pisty about whom his mother alleged something didn't seem right. Robinson didn't like Pisty's so-called goth look, her blue hair, or her reportedly sassy attitude. She didn't like the group of teens and 20-somethings who Pisty surrounded herself with, known drug and alcohol users like William Chase, Joel Millsap, and James Gay. What Robinson could not have known was that Pisty had begun dating her son while on a brief break from her relationship with 17-year-old William Chase. The break didn't last long, and soon Pisty was back with her old boyfriend. Perhaps this lapse in fidelity didn't sit well with Chase. Or perhaps it was something else. Jacob had arrived in Parker in June. He went missing in July. Jacob didn't deserve to die. I didn't even know he was going to die. But I honestly knew that they were going to beat him up. And in my opinion, he deserved to get the beat out of him. Jacob's body was found in August, naked, in a storm drain in a field across the street from Nancy Robinson's home. His throat had been slit after he had been choked to death. Before the discovery, the police had speculated that Jacob might simply have run away. His mother told them she had last seen her son leaving for a party that Stephanie Pisty, William Chase, and their group of friends were attending. But this notion that Jacob had run away was called into question when Stephanie Pisty became engaged to William Chase. When Pisty updated her relationship status on her Facebook page, she included with it an error-filled rambling post that read, Yeah, we're married, and he's going to die. He's the one that killed Jacob Hendershot. Well, I let him. I wanted the blood. The post was reported to the police by a local mother, and, subsequently, William Chase agreed to lead authorities to Jacob's body. Despite Stephanie Pisty's outlandish claims of being part vampire and part werewolf, a motive for Jacob Hendershot's brutal murder was eventually put forth. Yes, Stephanie claimed she wanted Jacob's blood, though she also confessed that she did not partake in drinking it after he was killed. Stephanie allowed that she only drank blood from her fiancé. But the reason for Jacob's murder turned out to be more mundane than vampirism. It seems Stephanie Pisty told William Chase that her relationship with Jacob was not consensual. She claimed that Jacob had raped her. Chase and his friends responded by luring the naive Jacob into their clutches, strangling him, and cutting his throat. A crime which earned William Chase and Joel Millsap 25 years in prison. Accomplice James Gay received only 15, and though Stephanie claimed she did not participate in the actual murder, she was sentenced to 12 years. But a run-of-the-mill teen murder isn't interesting enough to grab the public eye. Not anymore. Every single article I've found on this case leads not with the sad and senseless murder of a teenage boy accused by his murderer of a crime he was not likely to have committed, but with Stephanie Pisty's ludicrous claims of being part vampire and part werewolf. There was even an episode of the investigative discovery program, Murder Among Friends, dedicated to the case. 
Tuesday on the season finale of Murder Among Friends, a wholesome churchgoer falls for his gothic neighbor. They'd cuddle, they'd hold hands, but I had a bad taste in my mouth. And becomes part of her inner circle. Jacob says, I need friends. But this group's shocking beliefs. There are these Satanists performing sex rituals right in their quaint little town. Could put one of their members through hell. Murder Among Friends, season finale Tuesday at 9, only on Investigation Discovery. A group of disaffected teens could never have perpetrated something as terrible as the murder of Jacob Hendershot. Only an actual monster could have murdered him, right? Roderick Rod Farrell was born on March 28, 1980, in the small Kentucky town of Murray to 17-year-old Sandra Gibson. She married Rod's teenage father, Rick Farrell, nine days after the birth of their son, but the marriage was not to last. The couple split up a few weeks later when Rick filed for divorce and joined the army. Young Sandra was left by herself to raise her only son, though her parents helped from time to time. Rod himself claims that the genesis of his dysfunction began when he was five. He alleged that he was raped by his grandfather, though there is no available evidence to support this claim. Where Rod Farrell is concerned, the line between fact and fiction, believable and unbelievable, seems hopelessly blurred. Despite having no proof, he claims that from a very young age he was exposed to satanic rituals, occult ceremonies, and human sacrifices. Not only that, but he alleges his mother encouraged and participated in these practices. Sandra married again, but this union also ended rather quickly in divorce. Rod claims his mother's second husband was a participant in occult activity as well. As Rod grew into a teenager, he became an avid player of Dungeons and Dragons until he was introduced to a similar role-playing game called Vampire, The Masquerade. Whereas Dungeons & Dragons generally takes place in a fictional world of Tolkien-inspired high fantasy, Vampire the Masquerade is set in a fictionalized version of the modern world, where players assume the role of vampires belonging to a secret underground society. Rod became obsessed with Vampire the Masquerade, even fashioning his own identity after the character he created for the game. That character was Visago, a powerful 500-year-old vampire. To the exclusion of his grades and social life, Rod immersed himself in the game's fantasy world. He became a defiant student and teen, smoking openly on campus, skipping class, and spending his free time hanging out in local cemeteries. Rod even began to cut himself and alleged that he let others drink his blood. Rod spent most of his time with his friend Stephen Murphy, another immersed player of the vampire RPG. It was Steven who had introduced him to the game, and together the two began dabbling in drugs and staying out all night. Sandra permitted most of Rod's behavior, probably because she, herself, was not much of a role model. In September of 1996, Sandra will be charged with solicitation of a minor. Apparently intrigued by the fictional world Rod and his friend were engaged in, she had written love letters to Stephen Murphy's 14-year-old brother, in the letters, she allegedly asked to become the boy's vampire bride. Rod and his mother moved to Florida for a brief time in the mid-1990s before returning to Murray, Kentucky. It was in Florida that Rod became acquainted with a teenage girl named Heather Wendorf. 
Heather seemed intrigued by Rod's dark, mysterious personality. Once Rod had moved back home, the two continued their friendship long distance. Heather confided in Rod that she was being abused by her father. Due to the abuse he claimed to have suffered at the hands of his grandfather, Rod felt a personal duty to help remove Heather from her difficult situation. He began to concoct a plan, a mission to save his friend, not unlike the role-playing scenarios he engaged in as Visago. You want to know what it is to be a vampire? It equates to the life. It equates to power. It equates to the very foundation of existence. It's the communion. It's the holy wafer on the tongue. And that is what blood is to a sanguinary vampire. That's what a sanguinary vampire is, a blood feeder. While living in Murray, Rod had amassed a group of like-minded friends whom he dubbed his clan. Among them were Howard Scott Anderson, Dana Cooper, and Charity Kesey. They were similarly interested in a rebellious goth lifestyle, and Rod fancied himself the leader of this vampiric group. It was Anderson, Cooper, and Kesey whom Rod enlisted to accompany him back to Florida to rescue Heather Wendorf and induct her into their clan. On the way to Eustis, Florida, where Heather still resided with her parents Richard Wendorf and Naomi Ruth Queen, the group of teens began having car troubles. They decided that once they arrived at Heather's, they would steal her family's Ford Explorer. The group arrived in Eustis and picked up Heather, who agreed to leave her parents' garage door unlocked to allow Rod easy access to the house. She even told him where he could find the keys in her parents' bedroom. It was the night of November 25, 1996, three days before Thanksgiving, when Rod Farrell and Howard Scott Anderson crept into the Wendorf home under cover of darkness. Before entering the house, the pair searched the garage for a weapon to use in case they encountered any resistance from Heather's parents. The girls drop off Rod and Scott near Heather's home around 9 that night. They walk to the house and open the garage door that she'd allegedly unlocked for them. We had sticks, basically just wooden sticks in our hands. I didn't know how big her father was, and I was slightly worried about that. And I knew a grown man could smash me to the ground without a second thought. So Rod looks around the garage for something a little more dangerous than sticks. I see an axe. I was like, oh, there's an axe. Yeah, it's been done before. A chainsaw, that's too loud. That's when I found a crowbar. It was something I knew I could swat somebody away with and run if I had to. Once inside, Rod and Howard found Heather's father, Richard, asleep on the couch. Quietly, they moved into the back bedroom in search of the Explorer keys, but the pair had trouble locating them. This hitch in the plan seemed to cause Rod to snap. Without warning, he bludgeoned Richard Wendorf to death with the crowbar while he slept. As he finished the gruesome act, Naomi Queen entered the living room, holding a cup of coffee. Terrified by the two home invaders and the sight of her dead husband, she flung her coffee in Rod's face. This further incensed Rod and he wrestled her to the floor, where he used the crowbar to also bludgeon Naomi to death. Reeling from the double murder, both Rod and Howard somehow managed to locate the Explorer keys. They quickly exited the house and drove off into the darkness, 
leaving the gruesome murder scene to be discovered by Heather's sister, Jennifer. In several accounts of the story, it was alleged that Rod burned a V for Visago into Richard Wendorf's skin, but like so many of these stories, a closer look reveals no foundation for such a claim. The clan of teenagers would be stopped by police no less than five times on the way to their next destination, New Orleans. Rod considered, and correctly so, that keeping a low profile would serve them well. Each time, he managed to convince the police that he and his passengers were college students. It wasn't until Charity Kesey called her family from Baton Rouge that police were finally alerted. Three days after the murders in Eustis, Rod Farrell and his friends were arrested and extradited back to Florida. The trial was marred by sensationalism, something Rod added to in a desperate bid to clear his co-conspirators. He confessed fully to the murders of Richard and Naomi, acting unpredictably in the courtroom and making faces at news cameras. But Rod's antics didn't work for his friends. Howard Scott Anderson received a life sentence, while Dana Cooper and Charity Kesey were given 10 years and 17 and a half years, respectively. Rod Farrell's self-styled teenage vampire act earned him the death penalty. It was later commuted to life in prison. From Michelle Smith's outlandish claims to Rod Farrell's world of fantasy turned real, not one of these crimes appears to have been committed with true ritualistic or occult intent. So, why do we make these connections? Why assign meaning where there is none? True evil is often said to be faceless, but more accurately, it could be said that evil wears so many faces, it lacks one of its own. We want our evil to be visible, out in the open where we can steer clear of it. We call it Satanism, witchcraft, occult ritual. We depict the devil as a red man with horns and a pitchfork, a literal red flag, because to see him quietly hiding in the face of a neighbor or a co-worker is too terrible to comprehend. The salivating beast under our bed is its own warning. We hear its breathing, we smell its blood-matted fur. When it rears up to devour us, we scream and cover our eyes. But the razor-sharp claws never touch us. The crooked fangs never find purchase. It was a dream. Soon the monster becomes a wisp of nightmare, easily forgotten, exercised by our awakening. Real evil is, unfortunately, harder to spot. It finds its home in the banal, the boring, the easily overlooked. It sets up shop just beneath the surface. It doesn't need a label or a classification to do its work. Evil doesn't like us to see it coming. It doesn't like attention. It prefers to remain anonymous, erroneously filed away under lurid and sensational headlines. And when everyone is busy chasing their collective tale, trying to pinpoint evil's mythology and combat it with superstition, that's when it's finally visible. To those few unlucky enough to see it.
This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time.